0: Well, at this time, I'd like to dismiss kids for Children's Church, ages 3 to 5, 3 to kindergarten. Feel free to head back and join Miss Chris at the back for Children's Church. You guys will have a wonderful time of fellowship and study there. The rest of us are going to fellowship and study, uh, fellowship around and study First Peter 2, 4 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I would encourage you to have your Bibles with you. As I've said before, I prefer the paper to the digital, but we don't make a law out of that. But this morning, we're going to do a lot of jumping around the Bible, actually not something I normally like to do a lot in sermons, but we're going to do a lot more today of jumping back to the Old Testament as we go back to 1 Peter 2, just because you can't really understand what's going on in 1 Peter 2 until you have some grounding in God's Word in the Old Testament. So we're going to jump around a lot, so if you have your Bibles, so get your page-turning fingers ready. We'll start in 1 Peter 2, though. If you're able and willing, I would invite you to stand with me. As I read 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, I'm reading out of ESV. It's one of many good English translations we have. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you You have received mercy. You may be seated. Father, we come by your grace. And in faith, we ask that you'd speak to us this morning. Speak to us from your word. Speak to us of Jesus Christ. Convince us of who we are. In Him. We pray for those in Children's Church that even at a young age, you would begin to call out your people as living stones. And Lord, make us a spiritual house, a house of worship, offering spiritual sacrifices to you, our great God and King. Amen. Who are the people of God? It's a relevant question today. If you watch the news this week, you're aware of the horrific conflict in Israel and Gaza. It's an ongoing conflict. The recent flare instigated by unspeakably evil acts from Hamas, a terrorist organization. The conflict is one that we have a hard time wrapping our head around because, in my understanding, the conflict is not just over politics. It's not really even ultimately over land. It's over birthright, divine right, and the question of who are the people of God. As Israelites and Palestinians would both claim to be Abraham's children, Who are the true people of God? How is it that we are the people of God? What makes us the people of God? Is it by ethnicity? Home of origin? Land? Power? Wealth? Morality? What is it that makes us us the people of God, and I think many with me would say we are the people of God, but how is it, why is it that we can say that? Why does it matter? That's the question that Peter actually addresses this morning in this text, is he's writing to God's people. He's writing to Christians of various ethnic descent, scattered across Asia and Turkey, And Peter will encourage them that they are the true people of God. So the question I want to ask this morning, if this text answers, is what makes the church of Christ the people of God? Why is it that the church, we would say the church, Christians, the body of Christ, that we as the church are the true people of God. So the question is what makes the church of Christ the people of God? If somebody were to ask me to describe and define the church, this text might be one of the first places I go to in all New Testament scripture to show this is what the church is. Peter is encouraging his readers, saying, this is who you are, this is your identity, this is what defines you. You are the people of God, you, the church of Christ. So let's answer, what makes the church of Christ the people of God? And I'm going to give three answers to that question. Our status our foundation, and our ministry. That is what makes the Church of Christ, the people of God, our status, our foundation, our ministry. These are the things that make us His. First, let's consider our status. What makes the Church His special people? What gives them a special place, a privilege, a calling? What makes us His, our status? To do this, like I said, I want to first jump back to a couple Old Testament passages. So if you want to keep your finger right there in 1 Peter 2 and turn with me, you can. If you just want to listen, that's great too. But I'm going to go to three Old Testament passages. The first in Exodus 19. So I want you to see the language that Peter uses and why he uses it, and he does so very intentionally. So turn back to Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. In the context of Exodus 19, God has called his people out of Egyptian captivity. He's about to give them, in the next chapter, the, the Ten Commandments. They're there at the mountain. And God is telling his people who they are, making them his covenant people. He kind of formally forms the people of Israel by his covenant. And notice what God says about Israel, his covenant people, at Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So who are the people of Israel? They are God's treasure possession, the people of his possession. They are a kingdom of priests. They are a holy nation. Got that. Okay, let's turn to Isaiah 43. So turn much closer to the New Testament now in the book of Isaiah, which comes after the Psalms. Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. In Isaiah 43, God is promising his people Israel that he will save them, just as he called them out of Egypt. Now he says, I will call you out of Babylon, out of captivity. It's a promise of salvation for people who are in exile because they are his chosen people. Isaiah 43:20 20 and 21 says to Israel in captivity and exile, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So who is this people Israel that God will save? They are his chosen people. And he will save them that they might declare his praise. All right, lastly, let's go to the book of Hosea. A little bit further to the right in your Bibles, the book of Hosea. Comes at the beginning of the, the minor prophets, the book of the twelve. Hosea chapter two, verse twenty-three. In Hosea, God told the prophet Hosea to give his kids a couple of weird names. Why? Why? It was just is an illustration. Because the people had been disobedient. The people of Israel had wandered from God. So God is going to speak through Hosea and give them some weird names. Give these kids some weird names. But he does it for a reason. They were going to not have mercy, they were going to not be his people. But. God will save some of these people, these wandering Israelites, and he will redeem them. and They will be his people again. So God says to the prophet Hosea, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Out of Israel, the people who have been disobedient, wandering, who have not had mercy, they will have mercy once again. The people who have become not his people, some will be his people again. They will be the people of God. Now with all those labels in your head, all those names, go back to 1 Peter 2. Now listen to 1 Peter two five. And then I'm going to skip down to verses 9 and 10. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Then verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what Peter is doing? Peter is intentionally taking the names and the labels given by God to Israel talking to the church, Christians who are from various ethnicities, pagan backgrounds, worshipping idols, and saying, you are those people. You are my chosen people. If you're married or you have kids, do you have nicknames for people that you have affection for? You don't have to share your spousal nicknames. Those can be between you. We have nicknames for our kids, uh, specifically our youngest kid. We call her Bean a lot. She has a name, Audrey Bean, or Beanie Boozle, or whatever, some variation of, of Bean. Now, I have four kids, a- and sometimes I get nick- names messed up. You know, when I had five siblings, so I got called every name in the dog's name when my mom was calling me uh, growing up, and sometimes you get them mixed up. So sometimes I'll accidentally give the wrong nickname to the wrong kid, and I'll call one of the other ones, I oh, hate Bean, and I'm like, oh, and what happens then? Yeah, I'm not not that. You mixed up the names. That's the wrong nickname. And there's a fence to it, because those names are special. They're just for that person. Now, God, it might seem, has mixed up the nicknames. But I don't think God makes mistakes. The terms of affection, priesthood, My chosen people, a holy nation, people in my possession. Once not a people, now my people. Once not having received mercy, now receiving mercy. He's talking to the church and intentionally saying, you are my beloved people. You are my chosen people. God doesn't make mistakes. He didn't do this by accident. He's saying, you, church, are my people. You are living stones, a spiritual house. What is he saying when he calls them a spiritual house, living stones? It's a weird picture, isn't it? Stones that are alive? A spiritual house? He's talking about the temple. That's temple language. The temple that was in Israel, that temple that was kind of the, the pride and the place of the nation of Israel, because that is where God dwelled. And when God was dwelling there, it's how they knew they were God's people, because God, of all the places on earth, dwelled there in Israel within, in Jerusalem, in the temple. It's where earth and heaven met. But then Jesus comes along and he says, Actually, I'm the temple. Tear this place down, in three days I'll rebuild it. Jesus claims to be the temple of the living God, and then when he ascends after his resurrection, Jesus sends out his spirit, and what does the New Testament tell us about the church? The church is now the temple, because the church is the place where God dwells. Not just in one location, but across the globe, scattered as exiles and sojourners, wanders on the earth. They are where God's spirit is, where God dwells. We, as the church, are the spiritual house of God, where heaven and earth meet. We are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. A kingdom of priests. We don't have one or two ministers here at CBC. We've got a couple hundred. Because we are all priests in whom the Spirit dwells. We are the people of God's possession. Once we were not a people, as Peter tells his audience, once you were pagans worshiping foreign gods, you had no covenant relationship with God, you had no mercy of God, but then you became God's people. Now you are a people of His possession, a people belonging to Him who have His mercy. Do you see what Peter's saying to the church? You... Are the people of God? Or as Paul says in Galatians six sixteen, you are the Israel of God. Who are the people of God? Paul says in Galatians three seven, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul says this in Romans ten, six and seven, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Jesus, in an argument with some Jewish leaders, Pharisees in John eight, calls some of the Israelites sons of the devil. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus, speaking to the churches, refers to some Jewish people who have been persecuting the church. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Who are the chosen people of God? It is those who belong to God by faith, not by ethnicity not by land, not by blood or heritage. This means that there are some people born of Jewish blood who are the people of God by faith. And there are some people born of Palestinian blood who are the people of God by faith. And there are some people who are Israelites who are not the people of God. And there are some who are Palestinians who are not the people of God. And that is true of every other ethnicity and nation and people under heaven. Because Jesus Christ has built a church from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the church is wide open to anyone from any place Who will come by faith to know their Lord Jesus Christ. You are not condemned, you are not condemned by your background, nor are you automatically sanctified by your background. This is encouragement for Peter's hearers, who be looked down upon because they might not have the right blood, might not have the right heritage. And Peter says, No, you are the people. Of God. So what makes us the people of God, then? It's our status. How do we have our status? Well, we have that through our foundation. What makes the church of Christ, the people of God, first our status, then our foundation? I'm going to do the same thing again. We're going to go back to a couple of Old Testament verses, so stick with me. Because Peter's going to do something here. He's going to kind of make a meal of this stone theme. You mentioned living stones, and I was going to go on that theme. You you could say that this passage rocks. I'm so so sorry. Peter's going to go back to a couple of, of rocky places in the Old Testament. First, you can turn there if you want, Psalm 118, 22. Psalm one eighteen twenty two. Here, this psalm is, is about a king who is returning back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, back to the, the holy city, and he has conquered, he is victorious, he has won the battle, and he comes with salvation for his people. In the minds of Israelites, this psalm, for many, had actually taken on kind of a messianic. Uh, theme or expectation that this person described would be the Messiah who would save Israel. And verse 22, it says of this one who has conquered, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the nations, uh, those other people rejected, he has become the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? A lot of you know this. Cornerstone is that special choice stone that is laid in the corner of a foundation. That is the uh, the stone that determines the shape and the foundation of the whole structure. And as stonemasons were trying to find uh, the perfect stone, they would toss others aside and say, "No, this is the one that will be the foundational stone. It will determine the edges of the corner, and the house will be built upon that corner stone." Have you ever tried to fix something and thrown away the wrong piece? fixing a toilet, fixing a dishwasher, a car, and you look at some doohickey and say, ah, that doesn't look important, you throw it away. And then several trips to Home Depot later, you realize, oh, the thing that I threw away was the very thing I needed. Maybe you've thrown away the wrong person. I've heard the horror story of somebody who dumped their significant other long ago and then went to the job interview and said, oh, no, the person interviewing me is the one I rejected. The person I need the most. I threw away. That's what has gone on here. The very one who could save them, the cornerstone, was the one that they threw away, tossed aside, they rejected. What fools. They threw away the foundational peace. They threw away the Messiah. Now turn to Isaiah. Just a few pages over from your Psalms. Isaiah eight fourteen. Here Isaiah eight is a warning for the people of Israel. In all their conflict, they would be tempted to trust in their military might and their strength and the power, or trust in the alliances with other nations to save them. But God says, "Here's one thing you really need to trust: and you need to trust in Me." Because and the warning is there because many in the, both north and the south of Israel will actually reject the foundation stone that God had placed for them. The stone that they should stand on to be their foundation, they will trip over. Isaiah 8, 14 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. So what Isaiah is saying, God is saying through Isaiah... I'm going to place a foundational stone, a person who will be the Savior and be your foundation, but many of you are going to trip over him. Many of you are going to reject him. Just as the nations rejected the cornerstone, it turns out some of Israel will also reject this cornerstone. Lastly, turn over to Isaiah 28:16. Last Old Testament passage we'll go to. Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28:16 here, God tells his people, I'm laying a foundational stone, a cornerstone in Zion, in Jerusalem. A foundational stone, a house and a dwelling place for God's people. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste there'll be some who reject trip over this cornerstone but whoever believes in him will prosper either they will stand on the foundation stone or they will fall over it now go back to first peter 2 verse 4 and then verses 6 through 8, Peter says, with all those stone passages in mind, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Then down to verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honors for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you see again what Peter is saying? Who are those people who have this status as God's chosen people, holy nation, royal priesthood, they are those who stand on the foundation stone of Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of God's people. He is the one chosen by God, precious in his sight. God has elected, God has chosen, God has decided that Jesus Christ is going to be the one on which everything stands or falls. He could have chosen ethnicity, he could have chosen blood, he could have chosen background, he could have chosen morality, he could have chosen power, but what God chose to be the dividing line between those who stand and those who fall, between those who have secure footing and those who stumble and trip, the dividing line is Jesus Christ himself. He is the one, the cornerstone, and you either stand on him or you fall, and that's what Peter is saying. That's what the Old Testament is saying. That's what God has been saying from the beginning. It is all about Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the people of God. And he is the one who determines whether you stand or fall. For those who believe in him, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there will be honor for you. But for those who trip over him, for those who willingly, this is not an accidental trip, for those who willingly trip over him, reject him, why? Because Peter says, because they disobeyed the word. They did not listen to the Old Testament. They disobeyed the word, so they rejected the Messiah. Those who rejected him will stumble as they were destined to do. It's a warning. Do not trip over the cornerstone. It's a comfort to Peter's hearers. Don't be surprised when people reject the cornerstone. Be comforted they were destined to do so. It's a hard word, isn't it? Are you saying that there are some people who were destined to reject Jesus and trip over him? I'd say I'm not saying that. Peter is saying that, and God is saying that. The Apostles in Acts say that. Peter himself teaches in a sermon in Acts two twenty three. Listen to what he says, speaking to the Jewish leaders. Peter says, "This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God sovereignly planned this." delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both of these things are true. God had destined for this to take place, that the builders would reject the cornerstone, and some people would reject Jesus Christ. He had destined it to take place. And you are responsible for rejecting Jesus Christ. God is sovereign and in control, and you are responsible for for what you've done. It's how the church prays in Acts 4. Acts four twenty-seven, twenty-eight. 28, the church is praying together, and they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is a consistent theme in thinking of Scripture that God had planned this all out and God had destined that some people would reject Jesus Christ and at the same time, they are morally and culpably responsible for it because their sinful hearts disobeyed the Word. And both of those fit together. I like the way scholar Tom Schreiner puts it. He says, Peter articulates a common theme in the Scriptures that human beings are responsible for their sin and sin willingly and yet God controls all events in history. The scriptures do not resolve how these two themes fit together philosophically, though today we would call it a compatibilist worldview. We must admit, however, that how this fits together is difficult to explain, and hence theologians have often fallen prey to the temptation to deny one or the other truth. So we don't deny either of those two things. People are responsible whether they accept or reject Jesus Christ and at the same time God is sovereign and is destined that some will reject and some will accept Jesus Christ, the foundation, the cornerstone. Take it one step further, you might say, well, how's that fair? How can God still find fault with people if He is sovereign and in control. How's that work? It's a good question. I only know of one place in Scripture that answers that question. Romans 9, 19 to 20. Listen to the question and answer of Romans 9 and Paul's kind of shocking answer. Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can God still find fault with people's actions and their sins if he is sovereign in control and nobody can ultimately get around what God has ordained? Paul's answer? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? How's that for an answer? Paul's answer when we ask that question of how do these two things fit together? Moral responsibility, God's poverty, how do they fit? How can God still find fault? And Paul's answer, and the scriptural answer is, you're not God. And deal with it. And you say, that's not a very satisfying answer. But I think the more you rest in this, it is the most satisfying answer. Here's the answer. You're not God. And once you accept this, It'll change the way you live your Christian life. It'll change the way you read scripture. It'll change your faith. When you come to the realization that I don't understand everything fully, but I trust that God does and He's in control and I trust that it all works. And I trust and I have faith in Him because I'm not the cornerstone. I'm not the foundation. My understanding is in the foundation. Jesus Christ is the stone I stand upon, and I trust him. And the alternatives to this aren't any better. The alternative is either God is not in control or we're not responsible. And I don't like any of those alternatives. So I trust that God is in control. I trust that I'm responsible. And I trust that because that's what Scripture teaches me, and I will put my faith in him, Jesus Christ. And again, this is a comfort for the people that Peter's talking to. Here's the comfort God's in control. And you will see people reject Jesus Christ. You will see people who should know better. People who have heard the word, you'll see them reject Jesus Christ. And know that you don't have to run from Jesus. He's still the cornerstone. Don't be discouraged. Don't be alarmed. When you see people you love and people you know run away from Jesus, he's still the cornerstone. He's still the foundation. He is still God's appointed Messiah, and the church stands on him. And God's people, the ones he loves, he's a, with a saving love, stand on Jesus Christ. What makes the church of Christ the people of God? Our status as God's people, which is founded upon Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And now quickly, we'll finish up with a third answer. What makes the church of Jesus Christ the people of God? Our ministry, the ministry that we have as God's people. And basically, our ministry is worship and witness. Look at what verse 5 says, and then I'll skip down to verse 9. Verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why God has made you his holy people, his chosen and loved people, that you may worship him and that you may witness to him. You are a priest at a temple. And what do priests do? What's the role of a priest? To offer sacrifices, to lead in worship. The role of the priest in the Old Testament is to help the people of God worship, to be the mediator of God's presence, to bring sacrifices to him. That's what you are as a priest. You are a mediator of worship, and you bring sacrifices to the Lord. Not of animals. We don't do that anymore. I don't say that. just Temporarily, CBC doesn't do it anymore. But the whole church doesn't do this anymore. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, there's no more need for a sacrificial offering. Jesus Christ's blood is paid for it all. But we still, we bring sacrifices to him, so to speak. What kind? Well, spiritual sacrifices. We bring our offering of worship and praise. Romans 12 says we offer up our whole selves. We bring gifts of wealth for the spread of the gospel, Philippians 4 tells us. We bring offerings of song and praise. We share our possessions and good works, Hebrews 13 tells us. We bring ourselves and our whole lives And worship to God because He has made us His people. Uh, You may notice I kind of like to stand at the back in the lobby before service starts. I'm not taking roll. I just promise you that I'm not taking a head count necessarily. I I mean, I notice. I can't help. But I just like to see people come into worship. There's something so encouraging to watch people shuffle. (laughs) Into the house of God to come praise his name. Offering spiritual sacrifices of praise. That's what we're called to do because we're his people. We worship and we witness that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's one of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture because I can remember it now. He called you out of darkness. In, in Scripture, there's kind of two broad kinds of calling. There's the gospel call, the general call that goes out to all people. That's the, that's the call of the church. We take the gospel out and we call all people everywhere to come and worship Jesus. That's a general broad call that goes out to all people. That's the call of Jesus when he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. That's the, the open call, the general call that goes out to all people. But then in scripture, there's another kind of call we call the effectual calling. It comes through that general call, but the effectual call is the one that actually causes people to come. When I go out and I call the kids to come in from the yard for dinner, that's a general call. If I have to go and drag them, that's the effectual call. Right? It's the difference between all who are weary and heavy laden come to me and Lazarus come out. That's the call that raises the dead. That drags people out of darkness into light. And that's what Peter's talking about here. We church, we go out and declare excellencies. We praise God and give the general call come and worship your Lord and King Jesus Christ. And we do it because He has called us effectually. He dragged us out of darkness into light. He raised spiritually dead people to life by His call. So we go out and we give the general call, come to Jesus Christ. And how do we do it? We do it as His holy people. Notice the connection. You are a holy people, a people of my possession, my chosen people, a kingdom of priests, so that you're chosen and holy and made distinct, so that you can do this work. They're tied together the holiness of you as the church of God is connected to your evangelistic witness. And if you want to be good witnesses, if you want to declare the excellencies of God, if you want to call people into Jesus Christ, you have to do it as God's distinct and holy people. And we get this wrong so often. We think that to call the world out, we have to be like the world. Scripture tells us just the opposite. In order to declare the excellencies of God and call people to Him, we have to be like Him. We have to be distinct and holy His people. Like Jesus Christ, it's the only way we're gonna call people. Uh, Christian author Neil Shenvi recently said, I'll read you this quote, and we're just about done. He said, imagine a hospital claimed to have a cure for cancer. But they spent their time trying to desperately be relevant and hip, filling their waiting room with smoke machines and tie-ins to popular movies. We'd be rightly skeptical about whether they actually had a cure. In the same way, if we're constantly trying to make Christianity relevant and hip, we're actually undermining it. We're treating it like a commercial product. Christianity will always be relevant because it's true. It doesn't need our help. We are the people of God. We don't need to be something we're not. We will be most effective the more we are like our God. And as we go out with the gospel call, as his holy people, people will come to know Jesus Christ and stand on him. People of all kinds of backgrounds. And you might say, well, are the Israelites God's people too? Yes, if they come to Jesus Christ. Can Palestinians be God's people? Yes, if they come to Jesus Christ. All those who stand on him are his people who worship and witness to him, no matter where they come from. What makes the Church of Christ the people of God? Peter gives us three answers. Our status as God's chosen people. Our foundation of Jesus Christ and our ministry of worship and witness. This is the church, God's people. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would make us your people, and you have made us your people in Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would make us more and more like him, grow us into his image, that we may be living stones built upon the cornerstone, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the people of God's possession. And Lord, we praise you and thank you because this is not a status we have earned by our merit, this is a gift given by your grace we come from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of past moralities, all sorts of worldviews, but we have come to know Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And we have our union and our purpose and our ministry in him. So build us up by your grace. May we be your people shining in this world in a world that so desperately needs to know Jesus. Bring more people into his temple, we pray, Lord. Amen.